put the work that you do, both internally and how you build your own processes, but also the, the end product experience, put that through a lens of generative AI to see where things can be improved, where efficiency can be gained, or where new value can be created. And I think the next generation companies will certainly have some kind of AI capabilities deeply ingrained in their DNA. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution Show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Hey listeners, it's Alex here and to let you know, the countdown is on, the time is ticking. SaaStock Dublin 2023 is around the corner, less than three weeks, in fact. I'll be joined, and hopefully you will be joined as well, by the highest concentration of SaaS decision makers that Europe has ever seen. This is gonna be the biggest SaaS conference that Europe has ever seen. For three days, SaaS excellence, what do we mean by that? You coming to Dublin with your peers, full of entrepreneurial spirit, learning throughout uh, the heart of the conference, throughout the heart of Dublin for a few days. We've got some incredible sessions in the agenda from funding, growth, product market fit, seasoned advice with some of the best in the business on how they grew and scaled their SaaS businesses to even facing the lonely reality of being a founder. You know, I feel that one. You name it, the SaaS stage has got it. We'll hope to see you there. It is going to be such a great conference. If you've never been to SaaS before, like, uh, please ask somebody, you will surely know somebody, six degrees of separation, that's been, uh, and hopefully they'll say that it's their favorite uh, conference, not just SaaS conference, but conference that they've ever been to. So we have a great time, a great vibe. Hopefully we'll get you, the listeners down there. Use code SASREV, S-A-A-S-R-E-V, for 20% off your SaaS festival pass to SaaS.com in 2023. All right, welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show. I am your host, Alex Thuma, CEO, founder of SaaStock. Delighted to be joined today by Carl Fritjofsson, who's a general partner at Creandum. Welcome, Carl. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Good to have you on the podcast. So I thought, I assumed that you were dialing in from Sweden, but I couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, uh, whereabouts are you at the moment, Carl? I'm all the way over in California. So I actually run Creandum San Francisco office. I've been based out here for... Uh, 10 plus years now came over as a founder actually but uh you know going back and forth between europe and the us is my everyday life uh, so uh, I'm, I'm happy to be here although i dialed in maybe more more further away than you expected me to yeah i can i can slightly hear now the uh, american twang with a little bit of the scandinavian obviously still uh, uh very much there and you, you come over to europe a lot then so like how uh, how often do you come over to Europe and, you, you know, is that taxing? Is that quite tiring for you, you know, with all the travel? Or is it it's something that you kind of manage quite well? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the life that I know right now and I don't mind it at all. I actually enjoy it quite a lot to be in two continents. Uh, so I travel roughly a week per month into Europe. Um, and then I also get up very early. I usually start my days at 6 a.m. at least uh, in order to get enough time zone overlap with with my colleagues and all the portfolio companies we have in Europe. So for context, Trianum has four offices, which is Stockholm, Berlin, London, and San Francisco. And, you know, the lion's share of our focus is doing early stage venture in Europe. And, and the reason why we have a U.S. office is really to be a better and more informed investor in Europe, identifying some trends, better evaluate opportunities in Europe from the lens of what's happening in the U.S., but most importantly, to help our European companies expand into the U.S. 
So a lot of the stuff that I do is obviously work with our portfolio companies on that on that thesis to just help them go across the pond. But in addition to that, I, I try to source as much as I can and chase deals on the ground in Europe by being in and out uh, and, and obviously supported by my team on the ground there as well. Makes sense. Makes sense. And Carl, we always start with this question to try and get our, to know our guests a little bit more, you know, as a person. So, so tell us who is Carl Fritjofsson? Carl Fritjofsson, father of two, venture capitalist, former founder, um, comes out of Sweden, as you alluded to. Um, yeah, started my career in management consultant, realized I didn't want to work with large corporates and uh, then stumbled into the world of startups, I would say. I didn't know anything about that, but I, I guess my ego served me in such a way that I wanted to play a bigger role in, in a company environment than I was allowed to in, in the kind of Fortune 500 clients that I was working with. So I ended up starting a company with a person who's now my wife. This was a bootstrap company. We knew nothing about entrepreneurship at this point of time. Uh, and uh, we made it work. We luckily ran a business for, uh, I think it was 14 years until that business eventually got acquired. And we scaled it slowly but surely. Um, eventually, we hired a, another management team that continued to run it. And the two of us served on the board of that business. Um, but so after doing that for a few years, kind of learning the ropes about the world of startups, I actually then uh, realized the world of venture. And there was not many firms available and and doing early stage venture in Europe or sorry in the, in Nordics I should say at that point of time I was in Stockholm at this moment and uh, the Ukraine was one of the few firms so I actually got to know them mostly from an intellectual perspective I, I enjoyed kind of the the conversations and the intellectual challenges of trying to talk about an early stage idea in a company and the reason why it may or may not be successful so because I was a part of the Stockholm startup ecosystem I guess Creandum thought it was interesting to get to know me because I may see stuff before they did. And, and I, I was at all the meetups and that kind of stuff back during those days, right? So I was fairly deeply ingrained in that world. Um, so they eventually extended an offer to hire me as an associate. So I joined Creandum, and this is 13-ish years ago or so, uh, 13, 14 years maybe even. Um, I joined an associate and I came into those corridors thinking, I'm a founder, I can now help other founders. But I suffered from imposter syndrome quite quickly and realized I didn't know much about that kind of venture-backed startup journey. I knew the bootstrap slow moving. And here we were trying to advise people what to do when they have $5 million in their balance sheet. And you know th those were things I'd never seen before, right? So I then decided I wanted to try another venture uh, journey, a uh, startup journey myself. So I ended up leaving Creandum, co-founding a business which was called Rap, that ended up raising a seed round from Creandum. Um, and this then led me down a path of, you know, swinging for it. We, we eventually uh, had a Series A done by Greylock over in the US, which sparked the move for me to move over to the US and, and into Silicon Valley. And we then continued to build the business from there. Um, we sold that company after Series B, but it wasn't a major home run, to be honest, more of a soft landing, but it was a hell of a learning journey for me uh, and really tested my capabilities as a founder to, to a massive extent. And then after that, I was now in the US, I'd done two companies, I was toying around with what to do next. And um, Creandum at that time, lucky for me, had actually already opened up a San Francisco office. And the person that originally opened that up was my colleague, John Brenner. And he then had decided to move back to Sweden. Uh, so Creandum was trying to figure out what do we do with our US presence? And obviously I was a known entity for the firm, having initially been an associate with the firm and now a portfolio founder for a number of years. So uh, I got the second offer to, to rejoin Creandum basically. 
And, and uh, that has been my life for the past, I guess, seven years or so that I've been heading up our U.S. office and trying to learn how to become a venture investor for real. Uh, but enjoying it. It's good times. And, and it's, uh, it's the best job in the world. So I'm, I'm really grateful. Obviously, having been a founder, you know, an operator, bootstrapped a business, then you did the venture back business, which was RAP, right? Um, uh, you, you founded that, you raised seed, you got it through to Series B, you exited it. What were maybe some of the key learnings um, from the RAP journey, uh, I guess, that may, perhaps you can uh, distill and share? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think some of the things that we did really well with RAP that I think are great learnings and takeaways for us is that we were fairly good at that point of time to like identify a couple of macro trends that were happening in consumer internet and and the i guess the tech industry at large and then marrying those trends together we were able to build a really compelling story about what we're trying to build so we were able to really position the company in in what i think a lot of people perceive as something truly interesting and great and, you know, the TLDR there was that mobile internet was starting to take off really fast um, and um, uh, couponing and, and Groupon at the time was a company that had gained a lot of traction to prove that brick and mortar retailers were, were hungry for new marketing channels. Uh, and then we had digital marketing with which, you know, had reached some maturity already at this point in time. We're talking like 2009, 10 for time frame, I believe. Right. So um, so digital marketing was fairly established in the sense that people had an understanding of how you buy digital marketing and how you manage that funnel. And generally, it's performance based. It's fully transparent in terms of the, the kind of conversion engine. It's very targeted. You can switch it on or off based upon what you need. Right. All these capabilities that digital marketing uh, table stakes these days, but we felt there was an opportunity to kind of bring that intelligence, that marketing capabilities to the brick and mortar world. Um, so, and, and then combined with kind of mobile internet and social media revolution and, and how your network suddenly became much more, I guess, explicit and managed through a social platform, predominantly Facebook at the time. Uh, those were th things that we were like, we, we took them and bits and pieces and created a really compelling story around rap that, that I think, our customers, which were retailers, really loved. The investor community really felt it compelled that, that this was a big opportunity. And then our end users also saw that we were kind of building something new and unique for them. So those were things we did really well. We did a lot of mistakes, though, a lot of mistakes. And I think the biggest one was that we decided to completely change our strategy and our own path and our own beliefs of what we needed to do at that point of time based upon externalities from the market and most importantly from competition. So we ended up going head up against Rocket Internet, who cloned us with a company called Dropgifts at the time. And as you may remember from those days, Rocket Internet was really this clone machine. They identified things that were taken off and then just out executing the original concept or at least out executing the original concept in some other markets that were less prioritized by the original startup. So um, they went head up against us with a fairly aggressive approach. And we then decided to we're going to fight them in every market that we believe is important. So we ended up launching in, I think, 18 countries in the first you know, 12 to 18 months of the company's life cycle. And suddenly you had people all across the world. Remote work wasn't as established as, this, as it is today, right? So we, we didn't have the same kind of tools to collaborate as, as people may have today. So it was really challenging to just uh, run that organization. But maybe most importantly, we weren't ready for it. Like culturally, we weren't ready for it business-wise, we didn't have the processes in place. We didn't understand our customer and, uh, enough to really execute like that. So we ended up 
basically wasting a lot of money chasing competitions when we wouldn't have had to. They, it wasn't, it wasn't the, the success of the company wasn't dependent upon that. So that was a major mistake. And a secondary mistake that I think we did as well was that we also decided to really subsidize our own services to our customers. So our primary customers were brick and mortar retailers, right? That were buying digital marketing tools from us. And we decided to like, hey, just choose us instead of anyone else. And you don't have to pay until the, you know, six months into it. Like we didn't think it through. It wasn't like a well thought through freemium strategy that would convert and suddenly we would monetize it. And that, that's how we kind of got the, the CAC back. We were just about like, let's make sure that, that the mark is owned by us. And if anybody thinks about digital marketing in the brick and mortar retail, they should think about us. So we decided to, to also go to market with this super aggressive approach that didn't really focus on our own unit economics by any means. Uh, and I think that also caused a lot of problems for us. It, it, we lacked the discipline to manage the business in a sophisticated way. We also, to be honest, we lacked the, the, the level of urgency and importance from our customers because they weren't paying us. So they were like playing around with us as a toy on the side instead of taking it seriously and making an informed investment decision into us. Um, so that, yeah, that was really painful. So yeah, there was a lot of, I have a lot of battle scores. That's typically how I frame this. And, and uh, it, was, uh, it was a great learning period for me. But uh, yeah, I would have done a lot of things differently today. Do you think, um, obviously, your experience as a founder and those battle scars make you a better investor? Well, I do think it makes me a more empathetic investor. And does it make me make better investment decisions? I don't know. Maybe. Um, but I do think it helps to build rapport and, and trust with the founders that I've been in their shoes. I've done a lot of mistakes myself. I know what it's like to carry the shoulders of an entire organization uh, on my back and, and trying to figure out how to make it and the sleepless nights and the long mornings and everything else, right? I've been there. I think that helps to build empathy and to understand the founders. So I do think it makes me a better investor from that perspective because Trust between the VC and their portfolio founders is, I think, one of the more fundamental components of making that relationship fruitful. Um, and having been a founder, I think, helps to build that. And with Creandum, like, what, what would you say is the, uh, your unfair advantage? You know, and why, you know, why do companies, uh, and obviously some great ones, uh, you know, have chosen you, but you know, why, why did they do so? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's a combination of things. I think Usually when I get this question, I, I, I usually first start from the perspective that the venture industry is very competitive and the best founders choose investors, right? And it's hard for them to pick which investor to go with. Our logo is predominantly green. Someone else's logo is blue. Someone else is red. And we have portfolio services that we provide with an amazing head of talent. Her name is Michelle. And you know, we have enterprise sales support and data science support and all these bells and whistles, right? And each one of us at Crianum, we have various Rolodex that we can help with connecting our portfolio companies to potential candidates or to customers and the things. Every venture investor have these things, right? And, and these are just, I, I think of them as table stakes in order to just act uh, on, on a high level of, uh, in the world of venture. But what really separates us uh, is how we act uh, with our portfolio companies. I think that, that and, and it's, it's a fluffy one. But internally, we focus a lot, a lot on our culture and making sure that there's a, there's a consistent front-end experience of every person that interacts with Creandum. Um, and I think in that context, I think there's two things that are important to state. One is, is how we think of our role. And we think of our role as service providers to the founders. 
right? So service providers to the founders means that we're there, we're ready to roll up our sleeves and put in the work that is required. We don't only ask the, the smart questions, hopefully, but we also try to bring the solutions. We try to work with the founders. So we come into the room, whiteboard with them when things are trying to be solved. And, and we put force behind that and really trying to, try to make stuff happen and help our, our, uh, our founders. So I think that's just a level of ambition, how we think of ourselves. But the second one is also, um, we have a, a very, fairly strong underdog mentality at Crandom. We think of this journey that we're on. We're 20 year old. Well, we actually celebrated 20 year anniversary uh, last week. It was a great party. Uh, and we're happy everyone showed up. But in addition to the 20 years, like we, we've only gotten started here on our journey, right? And we're only as good as the next investment that we make and or the next support that we provide to our founders. So we're constantly hungry. We're constantly iterating, trying to perfect our own processes and our own way of doing venture. We constantly look at any one of our portfolio companies when they raise capital, what happened in those processes that we can learn from? How do other portfolio, or sorry, how do other venture investors work with their portfolio companies that we can learn from? And we like tweaking and iterating in the most granular details on an ongoing basis. And I think that hunger to like, Think of Creandum as our own startup, which need to evolve, which need to adapt, which need to be leaning in is, is a key component of, of why the energy between us and founders work. Um, but then, you know, more practically, I think what separates us against a lot of other early stage investors in Europe is that we have this multi-local kind of platform built up across our three offices in Europe and one in the US where you know, more or less every one of our companies aspire to this international expansion path, right? And we can help our companies locally with boots on the ground in the three of the most important tech ecosystems across Europe and the most important one in the world, which is obviously the US. So I think that also gives us some tangible boots on the ground proof points that we can really cater to and serve our, our founders. And for being a, you know, seed series A investor, that, that, that's something that not everyone holds uh, in in Europe. Um, so it's a long-winded answer to your question, but I think fundamentally when you ask our portfolio founders why they like us, they will say because we like how it is to interact with Creandum. You know, they, 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 they bring a certain energy and, and a, a certain smile on their face that makes the interactions pleasant. Um, and then hopefully we say something smart every once in a while, but, but I'm not sure. Um, well, uh, let, let, let's sort of segue into um you know, the topic that we wanted to uh, uh, talk about, which was, you know, what's required to raise venture when the world has changed. And uh, I, I guess before we get into like what's required, sort of in your view, you, you know, why has the world changed? You know, what, what, is, what is the change, you know, and what is the, what is the difficulty or the impact of, uh, of raising venture? Uh, and then let's talk about, you know, what is actually required. Yeah. Well, I think we have to go back in history a little bit here and, and be honest with ourselves that the current market we're in today isn't that big of a deviation from what the last 20 years of our existence has looked like all the way throughout. It is the last few years that happened before the current market we're in. That, those were the true anomaly where things were crazy and wild. And things are different today compared to that, but things aren't dramatically different today than what they were before that boom cycle happened, right? And... Uh, the obvious reasons why this thing happened is, is because money was free. Money was, was widely available. And there was too money being invested into the, the private markets. And uh, it was done because so much money came in. I guess the, the, the bar and, and the diligence of those investment decisions started to alter. Um, and more companies got funded than deserved to get funded, maybe. And uh, uh, people were paying prices that were far, 
further away from what the true value and the risk reward looked like for those opportunities at that point in time. So with that in mind, I think today it's, it's not as bad as some people may think it is, especially at the early stages. Um, I think we, we ran some numbers, right? And growth has hit by far the hardest. It's down, I think, like fundraising in terms of money into growth rounds down like 80% from the peak. Uh, so it's a, it's a big haircut, right? Um, and valuations, you know, I think uh, 60% for, or something like that for growth rounds. But keep in mind, a lot of growth rounds aren't happening. And the ones that are happening are only the most exciting ones. So maybe the true number is, is even even further down than that in terms of valuations. So, um, so yeah, so I, so I think, I, I think that it is a different market today, but I don't necessarily think it, it, it's dramatically bad. Yeah, so, so not all, all doom and gloom then, especially at the early stage. And I think, as you say, in the growth and, you know, not really any or many series Bs and Cs are, are getting done, but predominantly our, our, our audience is, you know, in that sort of like earlier stage. So uh, it's good news for, for, for you, the, the listener, uh, to an extent. But if, if they are looking to raise, um, you know, what, what should they uh, expect? How should they uh, prepare? What do they need to kind of focus on? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I quickly touched on valuation. I think it's just worth to throwing that out there. I mean, there are still a couple of founders that keep their, their blinders on and haven't fully grasped the fact that, that a, a 1 million ARR business isn't worth, you know, 150 million pre, as maybe some people paid it before. So I think there's a certain valuation adjustment that needs to happen. I think at Seed, for example, it hasn't changed that much from, compared to what it was. Um, I think our numbers showed it's down like 15% or something like that. And the Series A is down a little bit more, um, 30 to 40% or something like that. So valuation has come down. That's just important to state. Um, but I think what, what maybe more importantly what has happened is that the maturity of a company when they raise respective rounds seem to have gone up, right? So the, the more established seed rounds that are happening now or companies that are generally doing real revenues. And, you know, we see seed rounds happening with companies that are doing between half and 1 million of ARR, right? And, and they're raising three to 4 million at seed terms, right? So those things happen. And then series A, everybody used to think 1 million was the cutoff and then you're kind of graduating to series A territory. I think the 1 million ARR is rather two these days. And a lot of companies are raising series A, which are far beyond two even. I mean, we've seen companies three, four, five, six million ARR raising what they call the Series A at what we think reasonable Series A prices. So it's rare to raise a Series A below one million ARR these days. Um, Series B, you know, obviously the number starts trailing a little bit uh, further, but I think you, you're approaching kind of the 10 million mark for a Series B rather than let's still call it five-ish that it used to be before, or maybe even four to some extent. So. Things have changed in terms of maturity. Um, I think growth expectations on companies um, hasn't changed much from what it used to be. Um, we usually say, you know, at least two year, two x year on year, ideally three x plus is kind of the the broad benchmark, at least for Series A. Sometimes it's hard to measure growth at seed, but usually we, we kind of think about something of a derivative of that kind of growth trajectory to look at, at for seed as well. Um, and yeah, I, I, that, that hasn't changed. I, so basically the bar hasn't been lowered, right? People are still, VCs are still expecting high growth and, you know, to raise the big rounds, we're talking serious growth, like four or five X year on year, even, um, 
I think the irony of this is capital efficiency, which has become a topic and it wasn't in the past, right? I mean, even the concept of burn multiple, which now is like at the core heart and center of every board meeting that I'm at, like nobody asked about that a few years back. And it's, it's, I, I actually blame myself and our industry for not doing that. I think it was unwise that we had such a little focus on the, that component. Uh, but now this is heart center for everyone, right? And uh, you can't grow at any cost anymore. That's also the thing. So the expectation is to grow fast, but not by just wasting money. So we're talking in the like burn multiple for series A is like one and a half to three X range, ideally two or below. Uh, and then for, for series B, it becomes, you know, one to two, ideally sub one and a half, I would say. So the expectations here are fairly high uh, in terms of capital efficiency. And the combination of high growth capital efficiency means there's just much fewer companies that are venture backable with this bar. Um, so that's, that's the current environment. And, and I can quickly touch on valuation again, just in terms of, so people have a sense of ARR multiples. I mean, what we see these days is that it's like the medium is around 25 X ARR for early stage rounds, like seed series A, series B ish, right? So it's like the, the window is kind of 20 to 30 times ARR is, is typically where it happens for, I would call it like tier one rounds uh, in, in, from, from prominent investors with, with strong performing companies. Um, and, you know, this was 100 uh, in the last boom cycle and maybe, maybe even more than 100 in some instances, right? So this gives you an indication, right? A 20x multiple on a 2 million ARR business, that's a company worth 40 million pre if they're raising 10 million. So that's 50 post. Um, so that, that just needs to align with founders' expectations in terms of where the market is today. And then, of course, you have AI. That hype is real. All bets are off. Everything that I said doesn't matter. Uh, idiot VCs love to follow major trends because we somehow outsource our conviction to the collective wisdom. And right now, our craziness is anchored around AI and people are willing to pay any price there is for that. Um, and I think there's some substance to it. I mean, AI, I'm super excited about it new computational platform. I mean, I, I really, I really am excited about it, but I also am a little scared to see how the venture industry moved from one boom hype and everything crashed. And then we like, we just found another one instantly in order to, it's like heroin for the venture industry. Somehow we just need to chase it and we find it uh, in any instances. And just on AI, cause I was, I'm glad you brought that up. So I was, I was going to ask about it, uh, given it is the, the current sort of hype, uh, um, within the market. Uh, do you think it's going to be sort of table stakes for uh, like all SaaS companies when they're building their their products now, you know, at the early stage to to have AI, you know, baked in? What are your thoughts there? Yes, I'm I'm bullish on this, but what I am yet to be proven is really whether all the value will be captured here, because I do think that, and I'm advising this to every company that I'm involved in, like. Like put the work that you do, both internally and how you build your own processes, but also the, the end product experience, put that through a lens of generative AI to see where things can be improved, where efficiency can be gained, or where new value can be created. And I think the next generation companies will certainly have some kind of AI capabilities deeply ingrained in their DNA. I mean, you have to be an idiot today to run an engineering team without using certain kind of code editor AI tools out there, right? I mean, it, it just, it's so good that everybody just has to have to do it right now. So I would say from that lens, everyone is already uh, building products that are powered by AI. And then the question is how much can you redefine the workflows 
that your SaaS products ultimately is there to cater to and serve? And what is the new value that, that the potential AI feature can, can bring to this? What I am excited about is that <clears throat> I, I'm excited about the fact that I do believe every major software category will be impacted by this generative AI component in the workflows, right? Eliminating certain manual tasks, changing what type of interactions I get from the, from the software. Am I looking at data or am I learning from data, right? Just the, the, the prime typical example. And, and I do think what's interesting time right now from an investment perspective is that I do think you can look at any one software category, even though they have great big winners that establish respectable companies and think, how can this change with a generative AI approach? And are there amazing startups out there trying to build that? You know, from CRM to HRIS, to accounting software, to anything else, right? Like the big, big categories can and will be changed from this. The scary part being an early stage investor right now is that we've already seen some of the incumbents completely embrace generative AI in their product experiences. Um, I think Adobe is one prime example, Microsoft being another prime example, who are like deeply directing their vector into this space and redefining their own experiences with a pretty pretty rapid pace so early stage investors have always uh, you know we, we sleep on on the innovators dilemma book because that's that kind of feeds our own business that enough there, there's the, the big ones enough uh, eventually become so slow that they can't adapt to innovation and that's what creates opportunity for the smaller people to come up and and take over that market right that has been the case for many many years but now we're seeing these kind of tech first companies that are, I, they, they've also read the book, clearly, and they are doing everything they can to not be disrupted from that paradox. And uh, they seem to be executing fairly well on that. So that then brings me to like, so what are the opportunities? Like, which are the, the verticals or the applications that really, really become the, the opportunities here? Uh, and I do think there's, there'll, there'll be a host of new vertical software and, and application-specific um, um, processes that, that will create real value there um, and TBD who they are. But I also would love to back some of these major large software categories, which can be redefined with this approach first, um, assuming they, they credibly can take on the giant, so to speak. Interesting. I was super uh, sort of keen to see how this all uh, plays out. Uh, but yeah, definitely. I think uh, AI is the, uh, is the future or it's here uh, now. Um, let's move into the <clears throat> the quick fire round, um, uh, Carl. So let me ask you, what one thing has moved the needle the most for you in your career? This may be a little um, a little softish, but um, I mentioned my first company that I created with who's now my wife, and she showed me something that I didn't know was true until I actually did it myself, and that is this kind of naive optimism that you need as a founder in order to pursue something. And the, the energy that that comes with um, gives, you the, the, gives you the opportunity to actually pursue that. And that means much more than everything else. So I previously thought in order to become a founder or in order to become a leader of anything, you had to kind of earn the right you had to build your credentials by doing things and, and working in an industry for many years. And once you had that, you had the stripes to basically take on the responsibility of building a new company in that category or taking over leadership of one category. But it turns out that like energy beats brains and a lot of founders need 
to not know too much about an industry because then they realize the challenges and, and it's just the risk feels too, too inherent. So my wife came from kind of nowhere and just decided to become an entrepreneur. And I was like, how could you? I mean, you're six years younger than me. That was a big age difference back in those days. We were in, in our 20s. And, and she's also a woman and she didn't go to the best business school. Like, how could you, right? And all these things were like, like she, just, she just showed that there's another path here. And, um, and I think that, that kind of belief in yourself is something that I learned from her. And I think is one of the most important things for people in their career to just realize you can do it. Just fucking do it. Just go for it. And most people don't go for it. Just by going for it means you stand out from a hundred other people. And that gives you the opportunity to be successful. A hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent agree with you there. Um, what about the best advice you've ever received? Yeah, the best advice I've ever received is something that stands on a similar vein, actually. This was my professor in university uh, when I was doing my kind of final thesis. And he told me that energy beats brains. And uh, that's something I hold true today. Showing up, doing the work, coming in every day, continuing, pushing on, bringing force to what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, that, that outsmarts most people that think and, and uh, just stand still and, and the head is spitting. So a lot of it is about executing, daring to take a first step forward and then take the next step and then continue to take small, small, small steps uh, with force behind that. Um, that drives change and that drives progress. What about the biggest failure you've made and lesson learned? Well, the biggest failure is definitely the mistakes that we did at RAP uh, that I mentioned earlier. Um, those are the one that those were the ones that were um, decisions that were made on information that we didn't interpret the right way, and we overestimated a lot of I would call it vanity uh, features of of kind of the orbit that we were we were operating in. Um, yeah. What about hardest thing about being a VC in 2023? Um, first of all, VCs should never complain about their job. We work with founders who have it way, way harder and more difficult time than we ever, ever have. So let's start with that. But if you um, force me to say something, I mean, I think it touches a little bit on the question that you asked me around what makes Criando special and unique. It, it is this component that venture is competitive, very competitive. And it is hard to stand out in that competition. And the way that we work at Creandum is that we like to go deep with our founders. We like to get to know them, to show how we work and, and to build that trust. And that generally takes a bit of time, right? And in a world where things are very competitive and people making very fast and rapid decisions, sometimes there isn't enough time for us to really execute kind of our playbook on, on uh, how we win the heart of the founders. So there's a paradox always between depth and speed in venture that I think is, is, is a challenging balancing act for ours. Um, um, as we wrap it up, uh, obviously, we, we're very grateful that you're going to be flying over from LA to join us in Dublin at, at SASDOC next month um, on the 16th to the 18th of uh, October. Um, what will you be speaking about uh, at SASDOC and um, I, I'm assuming, have you been to Dublin before? You know, what are you looking forward to uh, at, at the conference? I have been to Dublin. I'm really excited to come back. It's actually been 10 years since I was there, so it's been a moment. But super excited to come back and obviously grateful that you'll have me. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to bring out a portfolio founders of ours, um, which is a guy named Kave from a company called Plan Hat. 
They operate a SaaS tool for kind of customer success management. And um, we're going to try to kind of break down what really drives enterprise value in a, in a company and what are the important things to consider as you design your own go-to-market and your own business model. And then how Kave has really like operationalized this in his own business. So I hope it'll be some really tactical advice and, and key takeaways to think about if you're early stage in your journey to, uh, to implement and in order to, to optimize kind of the long-term um, prospects of your business. Uh, and Carl, where can people find you online uh, if they want to reach out to you and, uh, and Creandum? Yeah, I, I'm on X, which is what we call it these days. Uh, my last name for Johnson, uh, which is hard to spell. Um, but if you Google Carl Creandum, you should find me. I'm available on all platforms there are. My personal website is fritjason.com, but I'm easily reachable with the email address that you would expect I have, uh, and I'm always available. So keen, keen to, for people to reach out. Well, Carl Fritjofsson, um, a general partner at Creandum, thanks so much for coming on the SaaS Revolution show today, sharing with the SaaS community. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SASDOC conferences around the world. Want exclusive SAS content and actionable insights to grow your SAS? Join our community of over 36,000 SAS founders at sasdoc.com.